This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Mount Park. Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. So th- this was a maybe, what, like Olympic pool sized? Uh, oh, yeah. like 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 not quite football field, but but like a, like a big space, large, large cold warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and the entire time that we were there, there were just these pallets of fish being brought in and taken back out again. Mm-hmm. As the auctioneer and this trailing group of madmen <laughs> <laughs> looked at each pallet and like and like threw tickets down and were bidding. And like like Brooks pointed out a couple people for us to talk with and was like hey take care of these guys um we didn't know to step in the water when we came in we got yelled at by this guy who i think I, maybe that's the reason why he came over and helped us out because he felt bad about the yelling he was a very sweet guy he at was. the end he actually <laughs> personally put his hand on my shoulder and said i'm really sorry that i raised my voice at you <laughs> he did i witnessed it <laughs> Oh, man. And he had so many tips for me. I loved it. He was like, oh, wait till they get to the mahi-mahi. It's going to go down. <laughs> it's like, ooh. And he tells all about those, like, cookie-cutter sharks. And I, I was very glad for his, like, oh, commentary, his running commentary. All his, all his insights, yeah. Mm-hmm. Swordfish is huge. Yes. They're so big. Yeah. 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 It, it, that's when um, Andrew and I witnessed a little bit of a kerfuffle break out. Between two of the auctioners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe some insults thrown. Maybe yeah. Some, Ooh, there was why some would insults. you make that purchase? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, there was definite shade, but I guess like voiced shade. So. <laughs> 
I saw Opa there, moonfish. Yeah. Beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, big kind of glittery looking fish. And yeah. I thought, I want to eat that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you did. I did. That uh-huh. night I ate that. And it was one of your favorites. It was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a really cool experience. Like, I, I remember when it was eventually, okay, we've seen... We should go. And I was kind of like, I know, but I want to see how this swordfish auction turns out. (laughs) It is going to go down on the Mai Mai. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it just happened so quick. It did. It did. It was a very well-oiled machine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, I guess it has to be because they put through how many thousands of pounds of fish, hundreds of thousands of pounds of fish a day? A lot. Yeah. And a lot of it. Well, I don't know if a lot is correct, but a, a good chunk of it does get eaten like that day. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. Hello, and welcome to Save Your Protection of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're talking about the fishing industry, particularly in Hawaii. And we wanted to do this episode because while we were in Oahu, we were so lucky to sit down with one Brooks Takanaka, the assistant general manager of the United Fishing Agency, and to attend very early one morning the uh, Honolulu Fish Auction. After a very late night. Uh, after a very late night. Um, and yeah, that's what we were talking about in that clip at the top, which we recorded when we got back to the studio with super producers Dylan and Andrew. And Brooks gave us this beautiful poster. So gorgeous. Of uh, the wild fish in Hawaii. And I'll be damned if we didn't get that poster back to Atlanta <laughs> through all kinds of travel shenanigans. Oh, yeah. Tiny little, little, little Plains to Maui, all kinds yeah. of weird, like, I, and it's a large poster. It, it is, is large and gorgeous, and he brought it into the studio with us today. Yeah. It, it is, made it. Brooks, if you're listening, <laughs> we got that poster back. <laughs> we love it, and thank you. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, did you fish at all growing up, Lauren? Uh, precisely once, I think. I, I have a very fond memory of going out with my Papa Marvin in Florida when I was maybe about five years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we caught these three silvery little fishes. And uh, I was just enchanted with the whole process. Like it was a side of the ocean that I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. How about you? I fished quite a bit growing up. Um in Gulf Shores, Alabama. Well, not there, but near there. Okay. Um, and I usually caught pinfish. Okay. Which are kind of difficult to get off your hook without getting a pin. No. Oh. Right to the hand. Oh, gosh. And there was this big bird that I call Edgar. <laughs> Edgar. And he would always try to steal my fish. <laughs> and he knocked me right into the water one time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Edgar. Yeah, and I every time I go back there, I see a similar bird, and I always call him Edgar, even though I'm sure it's a different bird. <laughs> at this at this juncture, it's likely. <laughs> yes, but any bird that looks like that is Edgar. He was like my nemesis for a while because he would like he would be outside my window at night, just oh, looking in to see wow. if I had any fish. Gosh, didn't have any fish. This is. Have you seen the lighthouse yet? I feel like this no, is all. No, but I've heard. I've heard that I should see it. Tightly related. Okay. Yeah. yeah there's a quote with the seabird in there. Yeah. Yeah. Seabirds yeah. play a role. Oh. They I have play no idea role. what could happen in this movie. <laughs> I have heard so many things. No clue. Um, one time I did catch a um, a flounder. A flounder. Yes, and I was so excited about it that I pulled it up too enthusiastically and it slid right off. And oh. now no one in my family believes I caught it, but I did. I believe you, Annie. Thank you, Lord. You're welcome. So this whole episode was for just so I could get some vindication. <laughs> I did catch it, and I called him Dr. Evil. Um, 
fishing, like fishing and eating seafood was pretty big in my family. So my grandfather had a, a shrimp boat, and that was wonderful. Oh, wow, cool. Cooking up fresh shrimp, amazing. Um, I've been deep sea fishing. I was terrible at it. <laughs> My relatives are good, though. You know, they have the pictures of them with the swordfish. Oh, wow. I don't know if it's a sword. It looks like a swordfish. Okay. But I don't think it is. But, okay, all of this brings us to our question. Yes. The fishing industry. What is it? Well, uh, massive? Yes. Yeah. uh, The fishing industry is the system by which various aquatic animals go from living in their aquatic environment to winding up on your plate. And that makes it sound kind of simple, and it's not. No. (laughs) Because within that, um, if you're talking about wild-caught fish anyway, all right, so you've got fisher humans actually catching the fish, uh, researchers helping them do that with all kinds of data and technology, then uh, wholesalers who buy the fish or people who work for uh, restaurants or grocers, often auctioneers who facilitate that, then regulators and more researchers who work with all of those people to help make sure that the fish is uh, safe to eat and that there will be more fish to catch later on, and then marketing teams and educators who work with all those people so that uh, consumers will want to cook and eat the fish. And then more researchers and packagers who figure out how to transport this fresh product and then actually do that thing. Um, And finally, chefs and home cooks who purchase and prepare the fish. And then your plate. Right. Yes. I mean, and the plate, gosh, like when you get down to it, it was made by a whole other industry of humans, and that's a different episode. Um, But yeah, it's the kind of thing that I just hadn't ever really thought about before. Um, When I've, you know, been in a grocery store going like, oh, man, the tuna looks good today. Or like in a restaurant being like, heck, yes, I'm ordering the scallops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, a couple years ago, I can't remember what the impetus was, but I became much more aware of, um, you know, looking at the where something comes from. Mm -hmm. And that that really impacted how much fish I, I bought or didn't because I love seafood. I love eating seafood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Me too. It's my favorite, basically. Yeah, me too. And it took a big hit after that. And I was really spoiled growing up because we would catch fish and we would put it in this big drum thing, get the scales off. Oh, cool. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then we would cook it that night. And it was so good. Yeah. (laughs) So amazing. And uh, getting a taste of that again, of that freshness in Hawaii was (sighs) wonderful and also sad because you know you're going to be away from it. But yeah, just being, there's so much that goes into (laughs) getting that to your plate. And um, I think a lot of us are unaware of much of that process. Oh, yeah. Um, But it is... It, it is a very huge industry because fish make up about 17% of the world's animal protein intake. Uh, the United States is the world's third largest consumer of fish at about 4.5 billion pounds in 2012. Ooh. I'm not translating that to kilos. It's a lot, guys. It is a lot. <laughs> um, from 1961 to 2011, the average American's caloric intake from fish went up by Forty percent, mm-hmm. um, and globally, it's more than doubled in that same amount of time. Wow! In 2015, U.S. commercial and recreational fishing drummed up 208 billion dollars in sales, adding a whopping 97 billion dollars to American GDP. What? Yeah, okay. <laughs> this equates to about 1.6 million full and part-time jobs supporting the industry. At the same time, over the past few years, the rates of domestic overfish stocks 
have decreased in the United States, reaching some of the lowest levels. Huzzah. Yes. 2016 saw four stocks build up to the point they where they could be removed from the overfished list, while six others were added to the list. Oh, well. Uh-huh. Yeah. However, the United States Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that globally around 90% of fisheries are either fully exploited or on the verge of collapse. Oof. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. China, India, Peru, Indonesia, and the U.S. lead the way when it comes to fish production. China exports a yearly $2.6 billion worth of fish. Um, The U.S. follows in second with an annual $2.1 billion in exports. When it comes to recreational fishing, estimates suggest that around 55 million non-commercial fishers contribute to the fishing industry in some way or another, somewhere around 10 to 12 percent of the world's population participates in this industry. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about Hawaii specifically, um, their fishing industry generated $900 million in sales as of 2015. And as of 2009, Honolulu specifically ranked 31st in the nation for fish landings by volume, um, 22 million pounds, but 8th in the nation in terms of landed value, uh, $59 million. Um, and they're such a major player basically because tuna. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But... Another interesting number for you. While the mainland United States imports 91% of their seafood, Hawaii only imports 57%, making the state much more self-sufficient in that regard. Here's Brooks. So what's interesting for us, we go catch the fish, come back, and, and, and pretty fair demand. I mean, we, we consume most of the fish here. But I'd say at any given time, maybe... 35% might find its way out depending on what the situation is. Like a lot of the swordfish still get sold to the mainland, but the appreciation for swordfish here is growing significantly. Mm-hmm. So there isn't any underutilized species on my floor anymore. Everything's got an appreciation for it. That's awesome. Yeah, well, that can create some problems too. <laughs> you know, you know the story about Paul Prudhomme and, and the redfish. He created such a demand for it that they they had a problem because they had to control the harvest of red drum because mm-hmm. they were overfishing it, yeah. so cause and effect again. Mm-hmm. Human human element. <laughs> Funny how we come, always come back to that. Huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Fish are a natural product. Um, And, of course, you can farm fish. Uh, As of 2014, actually just over half of the fish that we humans were eating was farm-raised. But uh, but modern aquaculture is sort of another episode. Like, well, we're going to glance through it, especially in our history section today. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it's just a whole other huge set of issues than wild-caught fishing. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, um, fish are wild animals. And they're just out there doing their thing. They're a natural product. And I know that it sounds duh <laughs> when I say it like that. But, like, as with so many other foods, I really think it's important to emphasize here because it's so easy to forget when you're presented with these just sparkling plastic packages of it. And that's your only experience with it. Right. Um, going to that fish auction was a viscerally <laughs> different experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> A lot of Hawaii's fish move through the United Fishing Agency's Honolulu Fish Auction on Pier 38 of the Commercial Fishing Village. Overall, in 2018, Hawaii's fishing industry took in 27 million pounds of fish, and about 83% of it went through the Honolulu Fish Auction. Yeah, so in the history of this this company, which is incorporated in 1952, it really, the, the founding father, I think, had an incredible idea, and that was to 
try to bring together the daily supply of fish and seafood to a facility that will allow purveyors to come and buy. So the company itself, in, in, in terms of its philosophy, basically facilitated the organizing of, of the marketing of seafood here in Hawaii. And so in the beginning, they, the company did a whole range of, of, of fish and seafood from near shore to the open ocean and then the, the deep sea open ocean as well, the bottom fish. Right, so you got open ocean or pelagic species, the benthipelagic, which is the deep sea bottom fish species, which is your snappers and stuff like that, all by special fishing and all, and then near shore, which is now a, a number of different kinds of methods of harvesting. But also at the same time, when I started in 1979, coming from a federal program in, in fisheries and aquaculture, uh, there were about 17 longline vessels in the fleet at that time. And now today we have over 140. Okay, so what's happened in time is that within these 40 years, this fleet has grown significantly. This industry has basically become what it is today. Yeah. And so what did it take to do that? First of all, when I came into the industry, I was working... Prior to that, I worked for the Sea Grant program. And one of the tasks we had was to promote fisheries in America, because it was at, at a law. Also promote underutilized species, okay? Because there wasn't a very much appreciation for seafood. But what happened was that there were companies that were trying to, they were interested in our fish. And so when I came on board, I realized that they had no idea what we were talking about. We use local terms. They didn't know what is an ahi, mm -hmm. what is a mahi mahi, what is an aga, this and that and the other. But they realized that quality was really good. So what's happened also is that not only have we taught the world about these different species and they're using our terms today to sell their fish, tuna today is, is ahi. And um, they also began to realize that the freshness and quality of the fish coming out of here was significant. This is the only fresh tuna auction in the United States and the only fish auction between Tokyo and Maine of its kind. Beginning at 1 a.m., six days a week, fishermen and women unload their catch into this huge, chilled warehouse. And after inspection, wholesalers, retailers, and restaurant representatives bid on these fish once this brass bell is rung at 5.30 in the morning. This creates a system in which higher-quality fish fetch a higher price and fair prices. And again, we're talking about a lot of fish here. Yeah, so the fish gets on the boat, they come back, and they call into an answering service. And the answering service, my guys come in at 12.30, call the answering service, who's on first, what's on second, whatever. <laughs> and there we go. Send the cards out, pick up the fish, bring them back, process them, and there we go. So they come in, ozone-treated water to kill the bacteria. Weighed, process, set up for auction, ozone treatment again, ice even with the facility, ice chilled to 45 degrees, and there we go, line it up. Big eye tunas, big to small, yellowfin tunas, big to small, and there we go. So where these fish are being caught, north, south, east, or west, makes a difference as well. Time of the year makes a difference as well, and here we, and so forth and so on. So that's just more complex realities of that. Sure. Yeah. 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 So they drop their fish, 
they clean up, provision up, ice up, within a matter of two, three days, they're back out there. Swordfish guys are out about a month, month and a half. They'll come in with maybe 30, 40,000. And then depending on how much we, they come in with, we'll determine how much we do on a given day. And then it's a matter of um, securing airline reservations as well as containers. And then we, we actually conduct a swordfish auction after the main auction. Then whoever's going to buy, buys off of that. And we pack it all up because the airlines wants us to pack it because of our due diligence. While we were at this auction, we recorded some audio, of course, uh-huh. <laughs> including our reactions and first impressions. You want to set the scene? So here we are early in the morning at a fish auction. And we're in a warehouse of iced down huge fish, like really huge. I think almost my height um, in some cases. And uh, people are auctioning, they're bidding on these fish. It's very lively and very fast. (laughs) And it's cold. Yeah, it's complete chaos in here. I feel like everywhere that I'm standing is the wrong place to stand. I feel eminently in danger of falling over into millions of dollars worth of fish. Um, it's not as cold as I expected, so that's nice. Maybe I'm just really nervous. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of fish. I don't think I understood how big these fish are. I'm used to like the aquariums in PetSmart, and uh, there was one over there that weighs over 300 pounds, and I have no idea what's going on. The scale and the mechanics of it, it's like a its like a very beautiful dance of dead fish. It's a bit like a ballet, a fish ballet. A fish, yeah. a dead fish ballet. Okay. <laughs> huh, uh, but, okay, so this, this industry, this well-oiled machine or dead fish ballet or whatever you want to call it. Um, It didn't just pop up out of nowhere, of course. It's uh, hundreds of thousands of years in the making. Um, And we will get into that history after we get back from a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, history, kind of briefly. Oh, yeah. Very briefly. Mm hmm. Because fishing is one of humanity's oldest industries. Uh huh. Yep. Teach a man to fish and all that. Uh-huh. Uh, catching and eating fish was first and foremost a means of survival as opposed to something done for profit for a long time. I mean, yeah, because it dates back to before profit was a concept. Yeah. And depending on where you were, eating fish was either a last resort or a first resort. <laughs> Some people really dug it. Some people really didn't. Um, <laughs> While our early ancestors most likely fished up to 550,000 years ago, fishing didn't really develop as we know it until somewhere between 40,000 and 10,000 BCE. Oh, so recently. (laughs) So I remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) Evidence uncovered at a cave in South Africa dates shellfish consumption to at least 140,000 years ago. And some of the earliest evidence of hook fishing was found in Southeast Asia about 16,000 years ago. Okay. Perhaps obviously a lot of early fishing and even modern fishing took place in areas with access to bodies of water. Makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. At first, people seem to have done a lot of fishing just with their hands. Nets, lines, spears, and rods used for fishing first appear in our historical records around 3,500 BCE in ancient Egypt. Of note, historians believe that in some places, people started noticing declining populations of fish around coral reefs and bays and other close-to-shore waters, basically places they could see. Uh As a result, some ancient civilizations established fishing grounds, the only places someone could legally go to catch fish. Huh. Yeah. Uh, Around the same time, 3,500 BCE or so, um, the ancient Chinese gave us one of the first examples of fish farming with a carp that were bred in ponds. Um, ancient Egyptians developed something similar. The first known treatise on sea fishing was written during ancient Greek and Roman times by the poet Opian. The Romans were big consumers and traders of fish, which they primarily caught through the use of nets. They also liked to showcase their most prized fish at over-the-top banquets. That doesn't sound like the ancient Romans. Nope. Sounds silly. <laughs> However, actually eating fish, especially certain types of fish, was often associated with the poor or soldiers as their rations included a lot of fish. No refrigeration meant that a lot of fish was fermented for later or perhaps made into the popular condiment garum. See our ketchup episode. 
for more on that one. Mm -hmm. Pliny and Homer also wrote about fishing. According to Pliny, some fishermen would take nets and spears, venture out into the water, and wait for dolphins to drive schools of fish into their nets. That's great. And then it gets better. Uh The dolphins would be rewarded with bread dipped in wine. (laughs) What a life. Hang out with some dolphins, catch some fish, get the dolphins drunk. Love it. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a regular Tuesday to me. (laughs) Uh, Hunters in New Guinea also used a kind of spectacular method. Um, They would build these wooden frames and then leave them somewhere where they knew that, like, spiders hung out. Mm -hmm. And then the spiders would spin a net over the frame. Spider silk is very strong. Yes. uh, And, yeah, it looks amazing. It does. Um, Illustrations, uh, yeah. Also, in Japan, the practice of fishing using trained birds, uh, specifically uh, comorants, was documented about 1,700 years ago. Yes, and I read that some it's still practiced in some areas, so I would love to hear from listeners. Yes! If that's true. That's delightful. Yes! Gosh. Oh. Wow, there's a whole world out there. Uh-huh. During Europe's feudal system of the Middle Ages, lords owned lakes and rivers— that made fishing tightly regulated. Religious communities that practiced periods of fasting or meatless days were some of the few allowed to fish. At one point in time, over half the days of the calendar year were meatless for practicing Christians, which really helped increase the popularity of fish. Huh. Yes. Oh, I want to do an episode on that right now. I do, too. <sighs> okay. All right. Anyway, um, uh, interesting note here. As farming techniques and water management technology advanced around the 10th and 11th century, archaeologists can track changes in fishing in places like uh, like England, where people kind of suddenly around that time switched from eating freshwater fish to eating saltwater fish. Like, the archaeologists think that the pollution from farms and environmental changes due to dams being created caused freshwater fish populations to collapse and necessitated uh, a move to saltwater fish. Wow. Ancient Hawaiians practiced an advanced technique of fish farming by the 13th century CE, and they did this by creating seawater ponds that fish could access through a series of grates and canals. Young fish could get in, but as they grew and got bigger, they could not get out. Ah, Trixie, mm-hmm. yeah. I know. Almost every native Hawaiian at the time participated in fishing. Overfishing wasn't a problem, though. Uh, there was a sense of stewardship and responsibility to natural resources enforced by community and religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, Although deep-sea fishing existed as early as the 15th century, uh, it didn't really get started in in seriousness until like the 19th century because that's when steamboats elevated and popularized it uh, because it was much less of a butt pain at that point. (laughs) Um, uh, And more profitable um, with a mass of trawlers pulling nets. Trawlers would later be used to sweep for mines during World War I and II. Mm Mm-hmm. Perhaps the first instance, or recorded instance, of modern fish farming took place in Germany in the mid-1700s when a German farmer successfully fertilized river trout on his land. Huh. Native Americans who lived near water, of course, engaged in fishing, um, a way of life that was threatened when boats from Europe began to arrive. Uh, North America's first large-ish fishing communities formed in the 18th century, for the most part around the New England area. However, um, one of the first established fishing communities was in what's now Washington State, founded by explorer James Burney. Through uh, salting and packing fish, in, in part traded from Native Americans, the industry took off by 1861. 
People started to stock ponds and uh, open bodies of water with fish, uh, feed them and harvest them. And yeah, the, the industry only grew as more immigrants came from Europe, bringing with them their fishing know-how. 43 distinct fisheries were up and running across the country by 1880, um, employing 130,000 people. Ooh. Huh. Commercial fishing at this time could be dangerous. Oh, yeah. An anonymous reporter wrote in 1876, the history of the Gloucester fisheries has been written in tears. Almost 2,500 fishermen from Gloucester, which is in Massachusetts, by the way, never returned home in the years from 1866 to 1890. This led the community to come together to create the Gloucester Fishermen's and Seamen's Widows and Orphans Aid Society Fund in 1865. When will the slaughter cease? Captain Joseph Collins wrote in the Cape Ann Weekly Advertiser in 1882. Technological improvements when it came to ship design and fishing equipment did help improve the situation in the following decades in various ways. Safety, overall haul, processing, packaging. A lot of canneries were opening at this time, which Mm -hmm. you can see some past episodes for that. Uh Um, Storing and shipping. Those kind of things. Yeah. Um, and several of the fisheries that thrived during this period, Atlantic cod, Chesapeake oysters, Columbia River salmon, and the whaling industry would go on to be in crisis later due to overfishing. Um, whaling was such a huge industry in America from the late 1700s to the mid-1800s, um, by which time the whale population was decimated in the Atlantic. Um, All parts of the whale were used, um, but they were primarily sought after for their blubber, which was made into oil, which fed the whole gaslight thing. Yeah, um, so many specialized tools were developed for processing whales. Uh, Whale boats were sometimes towed for miles by an angry whale. These were called Nantucket sleigh rides, Mm -hmm. um, since the industry in the States originated in Nantucket. Um, Oh, future episode, Moby Dick reading, I, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were talking about that before this started, and uh, I kind of forgot that was a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like a dark Victorian-era fantasy. <laughs> it seems like Moby Dick is a horror novel, <laughs> and it couldn't have possibly really happened. But it did, and there's this wonderful—if you're interested, uh, the Smithsonian has—it was a past exhibit that they did uh, about basically all humanity and water, but there's a specific section on fishing and— uh, past industries of fishing, and they have and a whaling. whole yeah. thing about Oof. whaling. And I went on a very deep, dark <laughs> rabbit hole. But I did find some wonderful sea shanties, which I hope we get to use one day. Oh, man, sea shanties. I know. That's great. Mm-hmm. <sighs> All right. Okay, anyway. Yes. <laughs> In 1871, the U.S.'s first fisheries laboratory was established by the U.S. Fish Commission, which was itself established earlier that year, making it the first federal agency set up around a natural resource. President Teddy Roosevelt signed a law for the construction of a second federal fisheries laboratory in 1900. By the way, our, our coworkers, uh, total aside, our coworkers just put out an awesome new podcast called History Versus. Um, every season they're tackling a different historical figure, and I bring it up because the first season is about Theodore Roosevelt, and it's awesome because that dude got up to some stuff. He did. Gosh. Um, it's also it's hosted by one of our friends over at Mental Floss, Aaron McCarthy. Um, yeah, if you dig history stuff, you should definitely check it out. Anyway, just yes. to say. Yeah. Japanese immigrants introduced longline fishing to Hawaii in 1917, at the time called flagline fishing. This method involved a section of a long mainline segmented with sections of tarred rope that was then 
horizontally suspended in water with floats complete with flags, flag on fishing. Attached to the ropes were numerous leaders and baited hooks. There were 42 of these flagline ships in Honolulu after World War II, and after a dip in the 70s and 80s, that number reached 164 vessels in 1991 as boat building technology and materials improved. One of these improvements was in the line itself, which was updated to a monofilament mainline and hydraulically powered reels. After World War II, regulations limiting the freedoms of Japanese immigrants involved in fishing helped along the incorporation of spam into Hawaiian cuisine. And you can see our spam episode for more on that. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Um, Okay, so as technology advanced, and thanks to the increasing popularity of tuna, handline fishing, uh, which is this method of deep-sea fishing that goes back to ancient Hawaiians, um, became commercially important in Hawaii in the 1970s. Um, And it's really environmentally valuable because it lets you catch specifically the fish you want without bycatch, because what you're doing is dropping a vertical line down into the water, catching a single fish on that line and pulling it up either either manually or or mechanically these days is more likely. Right. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, was set up in 1970. In 1976, the U.S. government enacted the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act to provide oversight for fisheries in American federal waters. One of the biggest impacts that this had was doing away with foreign fishing in U.S. territory. The act was amended in 1996 with added stipulations around overfishing, preventing bycatch, and protecting the habitats of fish. It was reauthorized in 2006. Uh, more regulations. The uh, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, uh, FAO, introduced the Code of Conduct for Responsible Fisheries in 1995. It's a voluntary international agreement, um, but it, it offers tools to measure and evaluate fisheries so that they can um, develop or, or maintain sustainable operations. Due to a combination of stagnated catch rates and increasing demand, aquaculture has consistently grown by about 8% every year since the 1970s. And yeah, in 2014, aquaculture and farmed fish output for human consumption surpassed wild fish capture for the first time. Mm -hmm. Asia, and especially China, accounts for a lot of this. Oh, Mm -hmm. and that, that is our history section. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was a, it's a whirlwind. Um, but okay, um, through, through all of this, we've touched on a number of, of issues and, and regulations, and let's explore some more of those in depth. But first, let's take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, yes, let us talk about sustainability. Yeah, and one of the key aspects of that is climate change. Yep. Yep. Uh, Climate change is already impacting the fishing industry and will continue to do so in the coming decades as fish populations migrate into cooler waters up to 1,000 kilometers north in the case of North America's fish stocks, while other stocks will see their ranges cut in half. The impact of these shifts will ripple out to economic and political agreements, Already, fishing boats frequently have to make longer journeys than they once did to find fish, increasing the cost they incur. In some cases, processing centers have been forced to relocate, resulting in lost jobs. In other cases, valuable stocks of fish have migrated from one country's waters into another's, causing heated political debate and, in some instances, conflict. And we have seen that throughout history as well. Oh, yeah. You can see our oyster episode, our haddock episode, and or our cod episode for uh, historical examples of skirmishes around seafood access. In recent history, we've also seen environmental disasters like oil spills massively impact our fishing industry. And the full impact of these disasters is still unknown. Yeah. So, so I mean, it's already a whole difficult science to try to figure out how to take care of these populations of fish so that we will have them for the future. But this is certainly making it more complicated. Um, and, uh, and a big part of that, and another kind of, kind of key word that you might have heard in discussions about this is overfishing, um, which is pretty much like, like what it sounds like. Um, it's catching too many fish over time, depleting the population. To combat this, um, fishery managers and government entities calculate what's called the Maximum Sustainable Yields, or MSYs, and that dictates the number of fish that can be caught um, that will then replenish to levels that year over year consistently to meet the MSY. Um, Exceed that number, you're overfishing. There are um, fish population models that are one way that scientists and researchers determine the MSY and uh, whether or not a fishery is sustainable. And these models also help in identifying depleted stocks so that experts can make recommendations on how to build those stocks back up again. Quota systems are one way of enforcing those guidelines or uh, by kind of more expensively placing observers on ships. Catch limits aren't perfect, though, and in some cases have resulted in uh, economic hardship or, or just unpredictability of uh, volatility in markets. Absolutely. 
Another aspect of this is something that's called IUU in the industry, illegal, unreported, or unregulated fishing. Estimates suggest that IUU costs legal fishermen and fishing communities upwards of $23 billion. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) NOAA, the U.S. Department of State, and the U.S. Coast Guard combat this in multiple ways, primarily through restrictions around port entry and access. But uh, federal regulations around fishing, when implemented from afar and um, without those directly involved in the fishing industry at the table, have led to some major headaches and unintended consequences. When government does not do things as responsibly as it could, in a timely manner as it should, then what happens is it adversely affects industries like ours. So simply put, how many, how many industries were adversely affected when the government shut down? Here we go. Okay, you see? Yeah. So now in our case, a simple biological opinion that was not completed on time became the problem for our fleet. So ergo, we have lost our swordfish fishing for the season, for this year. Wow. That's millions of dollars. Thank you very much. Because... As I say, happens. <laughs> so um, can't do too much about it, but complain. I just hope that government, who we pay, will get its act together and uh, be more responsible next year. Thank you very much. So part of the difficulties we deal with. Well, you know, we have. As I said, we have a lot of government people that come through all the time, okay? So here you are. They're back in Washington, D.C. They're putting together all these the rules and regulations, blah, blah, blah. They have no idea what the damn thing looks like. Sure. So now they come here and they see it. They hear the experience and it's like, wow, a totally different experience. Yeah. Every day. So what you intended to be good actually made it more difficult for us. And so here we go. So you keep Painting ourselves into a corner. America's approach is regulate. Same thing here, regulate. But how often do you work with the people that you're trying to regulate? So now you have a polarized situation as opposed to people working together to come up with the best solution. Part of what we deal with. Government agencies aren't the only ones at fault here. No, certainly not. No. Uninformed consumers are too. Yay! Yeah. And often the task of educating the consumer falls to those in the fishing industry and restaurateurs. Restaurant owner and chef Alan Wong gave an example. The story I want to say is that a few years ago, the, they put a ban on all the bottom fish, which were the... the most prized fishes, like the onaga would be the deep sea red snapper, the opakapaka would be the pink snapper, and they're down below past 300 feet deep. And so they were being overfished, a common thing around the world. And so they put originally a, a three month ban on that fish, those seven fishes, including the sea bass. It eventually went to six months, but uh, a couple of things happened. During that time when you could not get the Hawaiian Onaga, Hawaiian Opakapaka, uh, you had to look for an alternative source. And so farm-raised moi, farm-raised kampachi, 
and farm-raised tilapia. So do you eat tilapia? Mm -hmm. It's a good fish, isn't it? But that, that's one fish in Hawaii that has this bad stigma, okay? Right behind Waikiki is the Alawai Canal. And so when you ask somebody today, have you even eaten tilapia? Okay, they say no. Then I say, how do you know you don't like it? They say, because my parents told me. Then I ask the parents, have you eaten tilapia? They say, no. How do you know then? Because my grandparents told me, told me no. Because all tilapia comes from the Alawai and it's dirty water and it's polluted and it tastes like mud. Okay, so it has that stigma. But the farm-raised tilapia is actually excellent. So we have a, a, a guy on the North Shore, he grows tilapia. I said, you gotta grow it between five and eight pounds to make it worthwhile. So he grows it that big just for us and, and it's been an alternative source. So we, we gave birth to a couple of industries because of that. And because of the ban, we haven't had that ban ever since. So it worked, you know? One way to educate the public is through marketing. Mm -hmm. Yes, like that beautiful poster yes. that gave us. Ah. The other side of that is the marketing part of it, because as this was growing, I had to develop a, a means of, of basically marketing these fish. We were already doing that in terms of the, the information and all that. But then sustainability became a significant reality. Makes sense, right? But what is the essence of sustainability? It's a matter of trying to protect your resources, but at the same time, you got to feed people. And what's happening demographically with population continues to grow. Also, the world becomes much more aware of the significance of seafood because of the health, and also because it begins to taste good because you have different presentations of it. Yeah. You now have an appreciation for sashimi, which you never had before. Look at the poke bowl business today. Another issue we wanted to briefly mention, a whole other episode, um, is that this lack of education and um, some unscrupulous practices in the seafood supply chain has allowed for um, seafood fraud uh, throughout history and including today. Um, and this could be something like um, seafood substitution or passing off a cheaper species of fish for a more expensive one, uh, short weighing, or um, mislabeling fish to skirt regulations, um, uh, like, like misrepresenting a product's country of origin. And NOAA finds fraud of some kind in up to 40% of the seafood that they examine every year. Yeah, uh, definitely future episode. If I remember correctly, most of it is in short weighing. But, uh, yeah. 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 That made some news a couple years ago, I remember. Oh, yeah. You probably never really had this fish. This or, fish, yeah. yep. <laughs> yeah. We'll come back to that one yes. at a later date. For now, we need to talk about something else that we have touched on throughout this episode, bycatch. From 1950 to 2016, an estimated 6 million metric tons of sharks, for example, were tossed out as bycatch in the Pacific Ocean. And this is essentially not the fish you were going for. You caught it. You caught it, and it's dead now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and sharks, as apex predators, are hugely important to the food chain. So this was a kind of disturbing or troubling <laughs> right. find. Yeah. Yeah. But new innovations are being introduced all the time to limit bycatch. Brooks talked about one of these innovations when it comes to fishing hooks and bait used. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. where's the barb? Inside. Yeah. Okay, if you run this hook along your arm, not gonna hook you. It'll catch fish, all right? By doing this, 
instead of your regular J hook that you're used to, all right? So also changing from squid, which is resilient to fish as bait, mm -hmm. facilitated that whole situation and mitigated the interactions with turtles. Implementing these changes in Hawaii resulted in a 90% lower turtle bycatch rate um, when it comes to shallow set sword fishing gear. Um, but it's not just aquatic creatures either. Um, seafaring birds can get caught up in lines too. And uh, if there's bait on the surface attached to a hook, yeah. bird goes for the bait, gets caught. Yeah. Um, some of those 2004 regulations and, and subsequent changes in, in methods and technologies, though, also led to a 90% reduction in interactions with seabirds in Hawaii. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Something else we need to remember in this conversation is human rights. And we're not just talking about forced labor, which unfortunately is something that takes place and that we should talk about in a future episode as well. Uh-huh. Yeah. Working in the fishing industry is demanding and often dangerous. We ran a quote from Brooks about that back in our poke episode, um, like, you know, the amount of time that these folks are out for weeks on end and the unpredictability of the weather and just the manual labor it all entails. Um, these folks are risking their lives to bring us these fish. Um, and because it is their lives and their livelihood, they care deeply about sustainability in terms of both the fish and the people. Um, here's Brooks again. And because we did what we did, it facilitated their sales because they could sell things that are sustainably caught, right. that are safe for consumption. So all of that is transparent. It's, it's all been part of our program from way back. So coming into the harbor, when the boat lands, when we sell that fish, who we sold it to has always been part of the whole chain of transparency and, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> um, I would imagine that, that y'all care about it way more intensely than most. Well, you most have to. You, you know, again, the thing is this, in any business anyway, if if you didn't take it from that perspective, then what justice are you doing yourself and the people that you're trying to service and, and everything, and even your own people, right. okay? The pride with which we do things is important. That's that's what carries over to the people that, that, are, that are part of this because these people work hard. I don't know too many people that can work the kind of hours we do or be dedicated like we are that are constantly thinking about the industry, about our program. And so I'm very fortunate to have people like that, that are committed, that are loyal. And, and we're looking for others. And, and same thing. To me, the ideal situation is being able to work together with people that you love, you trust, that are productive, you, you're a great team, the synergy there, and man, we're going to do things. Same thing. We're trying to do the same thing. So it's a matter of developing a, a system, an approach that basically supports each other and, again, basically speaks to the truth. And that's what we want to do. So Eat, Think, and Drink, all of these programs that have developed as a result of um, food and wine, as, as a result of Denise's you know, thoughts and considerations, discussions with people like Dean Okimoto, the farmer, you know, and that kind of stuff, myself and all, um, has led to the development of these kinds of ideas, and which is good. And that's what's happening everywhere nowadays. Education, outreach, people want to know. Uh, the Denise he was referring to there is Denise Hayashi Yamaguchi of the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival, um, a representative of which, Michelle McGowan-Rice, we've been mentioning every episode of this miniseries because she and, and they in general helped put us in touch with a lot of these interviewees because 
they recognize how important education is. If there's anything I took away from our conversation with Brooks, it's that the industry is a lot more complicated than we as consumers can really comprehend, but, um, but that it's important to try. As always, we are big proponents of consumer education. The human element is something we do have control over, at least on an individual level. Oh, so many future topics. Oh. So much homework. I read 15 books about fishing. <laughs> 15! And they all had something to say. Oh. Oh. But if you have something to say, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at saverpod.com. You can also find us on social media. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Thanks so much to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard, our executive producer, Christopher Hasiotis, and our interviewees, Brooks Takanaka. You are a gem. You are. Also, thank you to Michelle McGowan-Rice of the Hawaii Food and Wine Festival, uh, Don Sakamoto-Paiva of Put It On My Plate, and Joy Goto and Maria Hartfield of the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau for putting us in touch with all of those interviewees. Yes. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <sighs> Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.